Please welcome Dr. Alam. Thank you. Thanks, Max. Hi, good morning. Thank you for being here so early. And um, I haven't been to one of these sessions before, so please feel free to guide me. But I don't have any um, aversion to someone interrupting or asking a question, although it's probably better to save it till the end. Um, given the format of the room. So the first talk is on a very similar um, topic as to what was originally scheduled. The, only the last part is a little different, fractional resurfacing. I'm going to go through it fairly quickly. There's a relatively large amount of material to cover. Um, and uh, we'll just see how far we can get. So I do have some research grants from several companies that make filler, um, including Biofarm, Allergan, and Medicis, but they go to Northwestern, and they uh, do not go to me in particular. I'd like to start off with soft tissue augmentation. So with, with soft tissue augmentation, the temporary fillers remain the most popular. Permanent fillers did come out in um, elsewhere in the world. They're about the latter part of the last um, Millennium, but they haven't caught on very much there, and even less so in the United States. And there are good reasons for it. While permanent fillers have the promise of a long-lasting correction, often you can have adverse events and persistent nodules that you don't want, such as this in the case of Dermalive a couple of years later, or this in the case of Aquamid, which required um, removal of a ulcerated nodule and an abscess. As you can imagine, having these patients come to your waiting room over and over again over many years is very disconcerting both for the patients and yourself. So I think hyaluronic acids um, have historically been the mainstay of treatment in the U.S. and remain that way at present. Um, there are two major manufacturers, as the Restylane Perlane family and the Juvederm, Juvederm Ultra Plus family. Um, but obviously, there have been many others that have been approved in the last seven years or so. So from 1983 to 2003, the only filler that was approved in the United States for injection was bovine collagen. And then there was um, obviously a flurry of other products that reached the market, starting with um, Restylane and then continuing even um, to other products that aren't on this list, such as Restylane and um, Juvederm, which have lidocaine already within them. There are a variety of different variables that can affect the differences between these products, they include the amount of HA, the particle size, the cross-linking, protein load, etc. And obviously the companies have made some allusions to these characteristics and how they might make their product better than someone else's. In practice, I think a lot of these are not really relevant to clinical treatment, and it's not clear that exactly what the cross-linking agent is or the total HA concentration has that much of an impact on either the clinical effect or on longevity. However, there's certainly no doubt that these are very common products, and this is 2005 ASDS statistics. And as you can see, um, one of the most rapidly growing substances is the, the fifth line from the top, which is dermal uh, filler injections. And that continues to be the case in the last half decade as well. Historically, the largest market share was with Restylane. Um, over time, that has diminished as Juvederm has come out, and now it's uh, more comparable with both of them. Um, that's what I said. And of course, now we have the newer Juvederm and Restylane varieties that have lidocaine within them. 
Is this better or worse? To some extent, I think this is a little gimmicky because obviously the first injection that you place in people, they're not numbed up, regardless of whether the material has lidocaine in it. So they are going to feel that. And you might want to use ice or topical anesthesia, or in some cases, nerve blocks, if you're doing an area like the nasolabial fold, where you can do nerve blocks effectively. Um, but obviously, uh, as you continue, if there's a little bit of lidocaine, it's going to hurt less and less over time. And they might have some persistent pain management, even after your nerve block wears off. So I'll leave it up to you to what extent this is a gimmicky thing um, that both of them had to do, because one of them was doing it, and to what extent it's really useful. Regarding longevity, hyaluronic acid products, even the best ones, which I would say are probably Juvederm and Restylane, the other ones last less long, um, last about six months. Unfortunately, there are no multi-center head-to-head comparison studies, so we don't know if one of these lasts slightly more than the other one, but at least anecdotally, that doesn't seem to be the case. It's about, the companies like to say about six to nine months. I think in reality, it's more like four to six months. Um, in terms of um, efficacy, um, the degree of improvement in nasolabial folds is usually of about one level um, at six and at 12 weeks, and maybe 70% of that is maintained at six months. So that suggests about a six-month longevity. Which filler to choose? It depends on whether you have a specific kind of defect that you're trying to correct, how much volume loss you have, and um, um, the, the patient-specific factors. And sometimes a combination of fillers is appropriate. One important thing um, um, I think that is not often talked about is where exactly to inject fillers. If you read about fillers, they're often referred to as dermal fillers. Um, and that, I think, is a bit of a misnomer, since virtually none of these, with the exception of the thinnest bovine collagen, which is no longer available, or human collagen, which is no longer available, it's been discontinued. So all of the currently available materials are injected actually in the subcutaneous fat at the dermal subcutaneous junction or below. None of these are injected in the dermis. If you inject any of these in the dermis, you're going to get a bleb on the surface of the skin, which will not regress and that will be an error. And if it's a hyaluronic acid product, you'll get a blue bleb because of the Tyndall effect. If it's some other product, you'll get a white bleb or a skin-colored bleb. But you do not want to inject this in the papillary dermis where it seems that it should be injected if it's a dermal filler, nor in the reticular dermis. It really has to be high in the subcutaneous fat right under the reticular dermis. And you can tell you're there because you won't get that intense back pressure that you do when you're injecting in the dermis. If it feels like you're injecting lidocaine, if you're getting a podorange um, appearance on the skin surface, you are way too high. There is, of course, a caveat. You don't want to go really, really deep in the subcutaneous fat because the subcutaneous fat is a cavernous space. So if you go in the mid or low subcutaneous fat, nothing bad will happen, but you will waste a lot of material. It will just kind of go somewhere and not necessarily correct the line or defect that you're targeting. There have been some changes in injection technique over time. So these are some of them. We'll talk more about them. One is zone injection, um, recontouring, large volume injection, um, lifting with the layering, and then using Botox and fillers combined, as well as some areas that weren't traditionally injected as much. So some advanced injection sites include the tear troughs, cheek lifting, pregial sulcus, hands, ears, and necks. Um, you can try to reduce bee bruising by using ice um, and also finer gauge needles. So injecting the tear trough is, again, um, probably not a beginning um, option, but once you're an experienced injector, I think this is a great place to inject. There, there are two, actually, areas um, on um, the lower eyelid that can be injected. One is the actual tear trough, which is right underneath 
um, the eyelid. And then there is something called a nasojugal fold, which is more of an oblique line that almost separates the cheek. So you have almost a double bubble of the cheek, and both of those can be injected. For the tear trough, you're injecting right on the periosteum. I think it's often a little confusing when you read about this. Some, t- some people suggest you inject under the periosteum. Um, that's not really possible. The periosteum can't even be scraped off easily with a, with a scalpel blade, let alone with an injection needle. So you're on top of the periosteum, but you're under the muscle. And you're injecting a relatively small volume. So usually, for most people, one vial of Restylane or Juvederm will be sufficient for both eyelids, uh, both lower eyelids. You can use a 32-gauge needle. 30-gauge needles, in my experience, are fine as well. And there are a couple of different injection techniques. Some people like to come from the side. You can also come from down going up and place lots of little blebs along the line and massage them. So both are fine. You want to do this very, very slowly because the faster you do this, the greater the likelihood that instead of pushing a little vessel out of the way, you're going to puncture it. If you do this really at a glacial pace, you can do this without causing bruising. So here are some of the the sites, and I'm going to move a little bit because I can't see this that well myself. Um, So we all know the most common sites, which are the nasolabial fold, and some of the other sites we're going to talk about. That's the tear trough. The nasojugal fold is about here. Um, Whoops. Um, Okay, I'm not doing a good job with this. I'm just going to talk. So um, the cheek implants, of course, you can have solid cheek implants. You can also have implants with um, Sculptra or Radius, polyalactate or calcium hydroxylapatite. We'll talk more about that. Down at the bottom of the face, the jowl, the pre-jowl sulcus, chin augmentation. On the nose, you can correct for a little bit of a divot on the posterior um, dorsum of the nose. However, you have to be careful. We'll talk more about that. If the patient has had numerous prior rhinoplasties or other nasal procedures, you probably don't want to do that because often they can have compromised blood supply on the dorsum of the nose if they've had prior nasal surgery. And there is a small danger of having tamponade of the residual blood supply, and actually the whole nose will slough off. You'll get um, necrosis. So you might want to refer those previously worked on noses to ENT. Um, Then, of course, the, the lip. You can both inject the substance of the lip and the periphery of the lip as a a method of improving lip definition. So injecting the forehead lines, usually, of course, forehead lines are treated with botulinum toxin, but it is possible when people have deeper forehead lines to accentuate that effect and make the botulinum toxin last longer by injecting into the so-called static creases that don't go away from Botox. And you can do this very carefully with a small needle, a 30 or 32 gauge needle, and then massage it in so that they don't have a little platform or uh, protuberant area over there. But I think this helps a lot. This makes the Botox last longer, and it also helps patients who have developed enough static creases that they're not going to go away right away with Botox. Um, Same thing, you can use fine needles for lip injections. These so-called necklace lines of the neck are difficult to treat and again can sometimes be done with fine injections of hyaluronic acid products. Has to be done very, very carefully. I don't do too much of this. We all know that the platysmal bands, the ones that go um, uh, sort of vertically down when you grit your teeth, can be injected with Botox, but these horizontal lines are a little bit harder. Um, And if you're doing these, again, you want to be very modest and judicious in your quantity to avoid it actually looking worse afterwards. Injection into the hand, you always want to pinch before you inject, 
because you don't want to inject into a vessel or stab a tendon or um, a bone, and then you massage afterwards. So tenting is important. Um, this is a before and after, sorry about the delay. And earlobe augmentation. Now earlobe augmentation is seldom a primary indication for patients, but um, to the extent that you have a little bit of volume left over after an injection somewhere else that they requested, you can always use the remainder um, for doing this. And people like this, especially older women, because their ear rings are often not fitting correctly, or they have a little bit of a distortion in their ear that they don't like. It's very easy to do. It's a massage between your thumb and forefinger, and there you are. Nipple enhancement, I've never done this, but a friend of mine, Casey Smith from Niagara Falls, does do this. And whenever you're doing anything on the breast, you have to be extremely careful and disclose all the side effects to the patients and be sure that they are not going to get agitated about, you know, or their internist is not about the fact that you're doing this because obviously there's a significant concern of having lucencies in the breast that could be mistaken for a malignancy. But nonetheless, if you inject immediately below the nipple, you can get an inverted nipple to pop out. Chin contouring, we'll talk more about this. This can be done in young people. It can also be done in older people who have a little bit of sagging of the jowls because as we know over time, what happens is the chin remains fixed, but the jowl sags. Um, because the fat pad, on the triangular fat pad on the cheek descends. And as it does that, it creates a bit of a split between the margin of the chin and the jowl, and that can be rectified by injection. Vermilion augmentation can be done with cosmoplast, which is unfortunately no longer going to be available, or, or with a hyaluronic like Juvederma uh, or Restylane. And this can accentuate the border of the lip and reduce the vertical lip lines without really making the lip larger. So this is for the most conservative patients who don't really want a larger lip, but don't want smoker's line or they don't want their makeup to bleed. And you can re-accentuate the vermilion that is atrophied in them over many years. A little bit of Botox can extend the results. It has to be done very symmetrically around the midline to avoid unilateral mouth droop or something like that. Maybe about four units symmetrically placed around the midline above and lower lip. Um, lip asymmetry can be corrected if it's congenital or caused by some other injury um, with injection of hyaluronic acids. And there's a recent report that you can use hyaluronic acid fillers to even correct cicatricial ectropion, which is kind of an interesting idea. And in this report, what they did is they placed several lines of material underneath the ectropion, and that basically created a little bit of a volume effect that caused the eyelid to turn back inward. In terms of persistence, um, the, most of the fillers, I'd say, are medium persistence. Human collagen, porcine collagen are no longer available, unfortunately, in the U.S. at this time. Um, but hyaluronic acid derivatives are usually temporary. Calcium hydroxylapatite, i.e. radius, polyalactic acid or polyalactate, i.e. sculpture, are medium-term products. And then the permanent products are silicone and polymethylmethacrylate microsteris. Silicone is off-label. It's only used, approved in the U.S. for intraocular tamponade after retinal detachment. But there is a purified form that can be used off-label. PMMA is um, Artifil, which is still available, although the prior manufacturer has gone under, but not many people are using it. There's concern in Europe and in Canada that after about five years, you begin to get some granulomas. So I think there's significant concern in the U.S., and people are very wary. So it's mostly hyaluronic acids, calcium hydroxylapatite, and polyalactate. With regard to filling type, I'd say the hyaluronic acids are usually linear fillers, meaning they're usually filling lines or divots or 
um, so forth. Calcium hydroxylapatite and polyalactate, as well as autologous fat, are probably in general more often used for volumetric filling, such as cheek augmentation. The depth of the defect, again, most of the remaining fillers that we're discussing are fairly versatile, can be used for most indications, um, except I would say polyalactate really can't be used to fill a superficial um, defect. It's not a standard filler. It's really um, small particulate um, uh, matter that induces a collagen response. And as such, it's good for making a large area fill, but not for making a specific area fill. I'd like to talk about some particular products that um, I think are um, coming into their own and have really developed a large following. One of them is radius. So what is radius or calcium hydroxylapatite? These are small spherules of essentially bone mineral. The same thing your bones are made out of, it's made um, artificially. And the way it works is these are delivered in a gelatinous matrix. The matrix kind of goes away, and then your body's native collagen encircles these little balls, and they last for a while. And then over time, they get biodegraded, and they eventually go away. They get pulverized into a little powder like this. However, because they're semi-solid, they're calcium particles, it takes pretty long for this to happen, more than for hyaluronic acids, which are complex sugars, to go away, so these last a little longer in the skin. This is what it's delivered as. Most of you know this. It's a white, thick white paste. Um, it can be extruded through a number of different needles. It comes in 0 0.3, 0 0.8, 1.5 cc syringes right now. Um, it's harder to press than most other materials like hyaluronics. Um, or at least different. And I think that's a very important take-home message. If you're trying a new filler, before you put it into a person, you really should put the right needle on it and kind of inject it into space and just get a sense of how much pressure you need. So when you put it in a person, you don't either inject hardly anything at all or inject a huge blob that you then have to fix later on. This was originally approved for... Um, head and neck indications, and now, of course, is approved for facial augmentation. Some considerations, it is relatively thick, and it can be visible if it's placed high. So again, you're not placing it in the dermis, it's in the subcutis. You need a large bore needle, at least a 27 gauge, and that's pretty much what you should use. There's no reason to use a bigger needle, because 27 works fine. Um, and it doesn't work at all anatomic sites. So here is um, an odd case of a... Uh, a, a excessively high placement of calcium hydroxylapatite that presented as an enlarging plaque in the nasolabial fold of a patient many years later. And um, this was possibly um, diagnosed as a basal cell and it was biopsied and sure enough it was just foreign material. So these things can migrate a little bit. The package insert and the history says that it doesn't migrate at all, but it does migrate a little bit. And if you place it really high, you can get these sort of odd effects later, later on. You do want to minimize pain. This does hurt on injection. And you can usually do nerve blocks. That's what I recommend. If you're not comfortable doing nerve blocks, I strongly suggest you learn how to do these um, for the infraorbital and the mental um, because they really make an enormous difference. There has been now a uh, randomized um, controlled trial, blinded and split face, indicating that when nasolabial folds are treated with calcium hydroxylapatite with lidocaine, um, it hurts less than when they're not treated with calcium hydroxylapatite mixed with lidocaine. Of course, this does not, this is in cases where they weren't also receiving nerve blocks. This is if there's no other method of pain control, it's better to use lidocaine mixed in with your um, uh, material. 
And you can use like a female to female adapter and just kind of move it back and forth. And now it's an FDA approved indication. The company will send you this stuff and you can make your own. It doesn't come prepackaged at this point. The pain score in this case was 2.8 with lidocaine and 6.6 .6 without. So again, the same randomized control trial does indicate similar efficacy and similar correction, but diminished pain when the two materials were mixed. To avoid bruising, like I mentioned earlier, you don't want to use much bigger than a 27-gauge needle. Again, slow injections are ideal for minimizing bruising. Um, there's also been a study. Um, many of the studies actually are by Dr. Cohen, who unfortunately couldn't be here today, um, but one of them by Cohen and Bhatia indicated that um, um, this is not specific to fillers, but it's a potential way of reducing bruising in fillers as well. They were creating artificial bruises, and then they were trying to treat them with a vitamin K preparation, one with placebo topically, and they found the vitamin K was more effective. So for some of your patients who need some hand-holding, who get a bruise, what to do, you know, topical vitamin K might be something you might want to suggest to them. Um, oral arnica is also being shown to be of some efficacy in reducing bruising. And um, actually, I think we have a paper in the British Journal of Dermatology like this month or last month or something like that, indicating that oral arnica can reduce bruising in the same manner. Um, minimizing bumps and nodules, pretty straightforward. You want to not inject superficially. Some people feel, myself as well, if you're doing cheek augmentation, it can be helpful to use a very long needle because that way you're less likely to call, cause blebs on the surface of the skin because the needle is all the way below and you're not having to keep removing it and reinserting it and risking a superficial injection, but it's really contingent on the site you're injecting. So this is my favorite odd story with radius. We injected a patient with a standard 1.5 cc to the nasolabial folds, and even though we instruct them not to massage, this patient couldn't resist the desire and um, pushed her bleb all the way up to the corner of her eye to her medial canthus, and then um, in a panic presented to her internist who thought it might be some unusual malignancy, and obtained an MRI, and of course the MRI indicated nothing of the sort, and then she came back to see me. And was very irate that she'd had to get the MRI, but of course, you know, had she come to me, I would have told her that, but the internist was not so familiar with radius. So in any event, um, this material can be moved by a determined person. So I would strongly suggest you urge them not to do that and to let it stay where you put it. You can also... Um, like I said, um, have very good injection technique. And when you do inject, to try to stay relatively deep so that you don't give a little superficial bleb as in this case. You also want to conserve injectant like we've spoken about before, because if you go very, very deep, nothing bad will happen, but you'll waste a tremendous amount of material in the deep cavernous subcutaneous space. So you want to be right underneath the dermis. So you can correct the line that you're treating without getting into the dermis, but also not way down deep in the subcutis where nothing bad will happen, nothing good will happen either. This is the way I usually inject. This is a slight error in this drawing, just so you know. The red arrows should be medial to the nasolabial fold, because you always want to inject medial to the nasolabial fold. Otherwise, you'll make the nasolabial fold more accentuated. But basically, this is how I inject the nasolabial folds. I have two entry sites, one at the base, one in the middle. I make a little triangle right next to the nose, inject as I withdraw, and then inject as I withdraw from the middle all the way down. And some people like a lot of crisscross injecting, but I think the nasolabial fold, at least in my hands, is very easy to inject as a line with two arrows at the top. So this is one way of doing it that's highly reliable. And then you can massage after. You have them open their mouth with thumb and forefinger, and that works very well. You do get redness. 
So do apprise your patients, no matter how good your technique for radius is, they're going to get some redness, they're going to need some makeup or something like that, or they can just deal with it and consider it to be a sunburn or something. But if you have good technique, you can avoid bruising, but you cannot avoid redness. comes in different size vials. You can use them for different things, um, depending on the degree of correction. What not to do? You do not want to use radius in the lips, and you do not want to use radius under the eyes. Okay, these are both basically a seriously bad idea. Um, you get ugly nodules in the lips, little bite blobs, and under the eyes you get lumpiness as well. So I would not do that. Comparison with Restylane, very similar effect. It just lasts a lot longer. So in general, I tell people you get about twice as long longevity. It's been used for lipoatrophy as well. It hasn't caused any serious adverse events. I'm going to zoom through some of these pictures. A lot of materials is required for lipoatrophy. And these are many other indications. These are also indications of fillers in general, of course. A lot of overlap between um, these. So marionette lines, you all know where they are. You can use linear threading or fanning. You don't want to inject too much material in these marionette lines, especially if you're doing radius, because you'll get a little sinking in. It's kind of like a sinkhole. It's kind of a hard material. It's better to do a little bit, bring them back. Do a little bit more, bring them back. Now, what about saving material? Now, saving material is a controversial thing. Um, the companies do not suggest you do this. These are all single-use files. You're supposed to use them all up and then discard them. However, there is some evidence in the literature, both with hyaluronic acid products and with RADS, that if you store it carefully, and you can keep it for a few months, and they've done sterility tests, and nothing bad has happened. But that is an off-label use, and if you choose to do that, you really should implement a system with double labeling and securing them in a special refrigerator and having someone monitor them every week or so um, to make sure that they're not expired and so forth. So it's kind of a pain in the neck, but you can store material, um, at least based on currently accepted clinical practice, although it is not on label. For the cheek augmentation, you can use whatever you want, threading, fanning, cross-hatching to create a 3D elevation. A long time ago, or at least a few years ago, um, the manufacturers advocated one other way of injecting was inside the mouth. So you could place a bleb inside the mouth, needle inside, right above the cheekbone, and then kind of massage it. And the benefit of that was reduced bruising. However, there's some theoretical concern about biofilms or infections that can be tracked from the inside of the mouth into the implant, and so that's no longer a recommended use. Okay. Cheek augmentation, intraoral injection, we spoke about that already. It's never really happened but, you know, it's just theory, and there's medical legal issues, and no one wants to go there. Mental crease, um, little line of right underneath your lip. You can inject this a couple of different ways. I find it's best if you inject it perpendicular to the crease. If you inject it parallel to the crease, you can actually just make a deeper crease sometimes. If you inject perpendicular, you can sometimes get the crease to stretch out a little bit. Nasal contour we discussed before. A good idea in someone with a virgin nose, but if someone's had a nose job before, you might want to send them to ENT. Same bit there. For injection of the hands, there are a couple of different ways of injecting the hands. And another material you can use is polyalactate, which we'll speak about a little bit later on as well. Um, but hands do work quite nicely. They do get a significant amount of edema and swelling in their hand. And the way to minimize this is to use a very dilute solution. So you do not want to use full strength radius or even diluted with 1 cc or 2 cc, but maybe you want to dilute it with several cc's and make a nice sort of mixture, and four or five cc's, and then you're injecting it in here. 
And there are a couple of ways of doing it. You can put one bleb in the middle, one blob in the middle and try to massage it. Or you can have multiple insertion sites, again with tenting the skin. And I recommend the multiple insertion sites because even when this material is very watery and diluted, it's hard to smush really far away from the entry site. And you can end up really smashing that hand down to try to get it to move around and have this panicky feeling that you can't move it and they just have a big blob in the center of their, of their dorsal hand. So if you have multiple sites, the moving it around isn't as hard. Um, you can get lumpiness, and again, lumpiness can be mitigated um, by injections of triamcinolone, but better prevented by using a dilute solution in multiple entry sites. Okay. Pre-jowled sulcus, this is this little crease we talked about that can happen when your jowl descends and your chin remains fixed. Um, it's kind of like there. And you can fix these with permanent implants as well, with silicone injections, but calcium hydroxylapatite is really an ideal um, material because it lasts a long time, is easy and well tolerated. The way I do this is you have um, the person sit down and you look at them from lots of different angles because this is really a three-dimensional defect on the corner of their chin. And if you inject just looking from the front, it might, they might look funny from the side or vice versa. So you want to kind of look all around and up and below and so forth and mark out the defect because once you start injecting, you won't even know where the defect is. And it doesn't have to be with calcium hydroxylapatite, Juvederm Ultra Plus, Perlane, any other longer lasting material would do well here as well. Sometimes they go all the way up to the corner of the mouth. You can mark out that triangular array if you'd like in that manner. And these are some before and after pictures. The tops are um, befores and the bottoms are afters. And you can see just with a small injection, this is 0.3 or 0.6 cc's of radius, you can really make a quite significant correction of the type that otherwise would require some surgical intervention. Here's a case of a more severe jowling in a patient. And this isn't completely corrected, but it's still quite a marked improvement um, from what she had before without any invasive procedure beyond an injection. In some cases, people have protuberant chins. It's just kind of a genetic anomaly. Um, and that can be improved as well, even in young people, as you can see in this case. It makes a significant difference, especially from the side view. And even in very, very marked cases of chin protrusion, this is not completely corrected, as you can see, but it's much better. She looks significantly less odd after treatment um, than she seemed before treatment. So this is a very easy procedure. It takes a few minutes to do it, and the right patient can make them quite happy. So currently, um, CAHAs are becoming more used, and a lot of the concerns that were originally out there about the calcium hardening and becoming radio-opaque and becoming little nodules hasn't really turned out to be the case. It's very cost-effective. Um, you can get, um, especially for older patients, with large volume. Um, this is actually a good product. Um, Bioform has recently been purchased by MERS, a German pharmaceutical company, and MERS has some of its own fillers, some of which are algae-based that might come to market. It's not really clear how this will change the availability of radius in the U.S. I doubt it will. Now, polyalactate is the other medium-term filler, and this is a powdery material that's similar to crushed vicryl suture. It's mixed with water, and it's injected, and the water goes away, and then the little bits of PLLA are deposited at various points in the subcutis and become little seeds around which collagen grows. And that takes several months to happen. And as that happens, you get increase in the skin volume at the site of injection. 
So there are some very good things about polyalactate. It's ideal for things like chin augmentation because it evenly fills a large area. Unlike radius, which you can occasionally feel a little lumpy because it's a firm material, even if it's cross-hatched, polyalactate always feels very natural, non-lumpy, just like your normal skin. Um, um, there are some caveats to that. We'll come to those. You have to massage it right after injection. And it develops gradually, which is also a good thing. So patients don't look completely different or bruised the day after um, you've done this. There's also been a steep price cut recently. It used to be very expensive, but it's become significantly more affordable. It's at half the price it used to be. So those are all good things. The problems are that patients can be impatient, and most cosmetic patients do not like to wait months for results. If you do use this material, you definitely want to photograph them. Because otherwise, even though you're convinced they look better, the improvement has occurred so gradually that they feel they've always looked like this. And they're always stunned when they see the before pictures and they say, oh yeah, you're right, it does look really different. It's still expensive because you need several vials per side per treatment and at $300 or $400, even $300 a vial wholesale, that can really begin to add up. It also has to be reconstituted ahead of time, ideally overnight. You mix this with um, sterile water, um, leave it overnight. Some people, have, I've tried also to just do it an hour ahead of time, but it doesn't mix as well. You really do need to leave this overnight um, and then agitate it right before injection. Trouble, of course, is patients, especially cosmetic patients, might not show up. They might change their mind. They might so run out of money, whatever. Um, and then you have this material that you don't know what to do with. There is some patient work involved. Unlike radius, you do want them to massage this. And the rule is five times a day for five minutes each time for five days after injection. And uh, if you can really get them to do that, you have to kind of frighten them to make sure they do that, they get a good result. If not, they can get some lumps and bumps, which you don't want. It's also, this material is not useful as a linear filler. So I would not suggest you try it. And especially, never, ever, please try this under the eyes. There are a number of patients I've seen and a number of patients who have been injected by prominent injectors who are very good in terms of technique, but were not able to prevent adverse events from eye injections. It looks like they have syringomas, and they don't go away even after many years. So please don't inject under the eyes. You might consider doing other fillers at the same time, on the lips and the eyes, for instance, while you're doing cheek augmentation. Reconstitute with a lot of water to prevent lumping and bumping and clogging of the needles while you're injecting. Do leave for many hours, like I said before, and do take before and after pictures so patients can tell the difference. This is what the stuff looks like. The more water, the better. Um, in fact, usually I put in so much water that you can hardly agitate it. The thing is just full of water. Um, and as you're taking it out, if it begins to get thicker, you can put some more water in it. Um, and then continue injecting. Evolence, I'm just going to talk about for interest, really, because this has been pulled off the market by J&J. &J. Um, nothing went bad with the product. J&J &J is a very big company, and they expected to make a lot of money from this product, and it didn't make quite as much money as they thought, and it just wasn't worth it for them to keep investing in it. So it's off the market now. But this is porcine collagen, available um, first in Canada before it became available here, only the, sorry, only the top kind ever was available in the U.S. And basically, you would digest the porcine collagen, then you reconstitute it, polymerize it again, and make it suitable for injection through this kind of long, convoluted pathway. It is kosher, um, which is kind of interesting. 
Um, so that's good. So if you're Jewish, you can still have it. It doesn't require refrigeration. It doesn't require a skin test. Um, so that's different than bovine and human collagens because bovine collagens require skin tests. Humans don't, but both require refrigeration. This doesn't. And unlike both of those other collagens, this lasts much longer, about six months. So now you're thinking, well, okay, so it's better than the other collagens because it lasts longer, but why wouldn't I just use a hyaluronic acid product? Why would I even want to use a collagen? Well, one potential reason is because collagen stimulates the clotting cascade. So these injections will bruise less than any hyaluronic acid injections. And some people are extremely prone to bruising and do not um, want injections as a consequence. For them, this was an ideal material. It's also not very immunogenic, so again, we discussed already, it doesn't need skin testing. The evidence that we had here, we never got evidence breeze, the thinner kind did require 27 gauge needle. And there are some limitations to its use. The most significant is you need to massage immediately after injection or you can get a bump. And immediately after doesn't mean 20 minutes later, it means within a minute, okay? Evalence probably shouldn't be injected under the eye anyway. So this is a bad example. It's the wrong location and inadequate massage. But even wherever it is injected, you want to massage it right away. Um, the evidence, of course, for deeper wrinkles if it's injected through a 27-gauge needle, not for super fine ones. In terms of persistence, as discussed before, it's comparable to Restylane, almost exactly the same, except it's a collagen and bruises a little bit less. So pain, erythema, swelling, bruising. If you look at the bruising scores, those between um, Evalence and Restylane and swelling are a little bit different. So you get a little bit less swelling, a little bit less bruising. Um, that's pretty much it. Unfortunately, it's not available anymore. These are some before and after pictures. Um, this is what happens when you place it in the lips, which you shouldn't do ever, because it's not appropriate for lips and eyes. And we discussed this as well. Interestingly enough, Zyplast and Cosmoplast and Cosmoderm are also off the market. So we've had this weird situation where from 83 to 2003, all we had is collagens, and now we have no collagens. They've all gone. Now, why have the bovine and human collagens gone? Because they're expensive to produce, they're hard to store, and in the era of hyaluronic acids and calcium hydroxylapatite, there just isn't enough demand. So again, nothing is wrong with the product, it's just no longer profitable, it's a niche indication. There is one very good indication for Cosmoderm 1, maybe if it's ever available again, for very, very, very superficial acne scars or little imperceptible lines. That was the only product, Cosmoderm 1 or Zyderm 1, that could be injected into the papillary dermis and you could get a whitish blanch with that, and the whitish blanch would fade, and the small defect would go away. But that was the only one. So it is a loss, because now we have no material that can be used for superficial papillary dermal defects. Maybe it'll come back at some point. Truly permanent fillers, um, there are some downsides with these, as we've discussed before. There are concerns about long-term immunogenicity. There's concerns with silicone that it's completely off-label. Um, I do use silicone. I only use it for HIV patients or patients with acne scarring. And that's what most conservative people use it for. Acne scarring being a very small amount is required. And HIV patients, of course, have bigger problems than the risk of an adverse event from silicone 20 or 30 years downstream. 
Old-time silicone was a non-purified form, and it was injected in kind of large boluses. The newer silicone is a purified pharmaceutical, and we inject tiny micro droplets of less than 0.01 cc's at a time. And the theory is those are completely encapsulated by collagen and hence not available to the systemic immune system, and so there's less of a risk of an adverse event. However, that's all theoretical. We think we've solved the problem, but until 20 or 30 years downstream, we won't really know. Um, permanent fillers, I hope we're not being slow to adopt these, mostly because we're concerned about safety, not because we just want to have patients who never go away, but it's, you, know, you have to be careful about your own motives and all of these things. Um, so zone injecting, we spoke about this before. This means not just a line, but kind of filling the whole area and removing all of the various lines and depressions to create a platform or plateau that's uniform. And this can be done with lots of different materials, some thinner materials in the base, some thicker materials on top. Juvederm Ultra Plus and Perlane are thicker, Restylane and Juvederm Ultra are thinner, and you can layer them. And this all goes to the thought that in the old days we felt that when people got older and their face got saggy, that was because they had too much skin and we had to resect the skin and make them tight as a drum again. And now the view has gone about 180 and the feeling is not so much that they have extra skin, as if they have not enough substance underneath the skin. So it's kind of more of a deflated beach ball. You want to reinflate that with fillers. This is the other thing I alluded to earlier. There's a triangular fat pad underneath the eye, and over time this descends and medially rotates. So the nasolabial fold becomes more marked, the jowls become more marked, and a groove opens up underneath the eye. Other reasons for that under-eye groove are also you get a little bit of translucency from the underlying bone, so that grayish color, can, a little bit of translucency as the amount of uh, subcutaneous fat diminishes over there. And also you get a little bit of a shadow from the lower eyelid. So there are a fair number of things that are going on to give those gray lines under the eye. So this is a patient, not mine, with cheek augmentation, and you can see that does help um, to fill out the face for people who've got a little bit of thinning. It often is very helpful with patients like this to also have them bring a photograph of what they looked like 10 or 20 years earlier. Because you don't want to do cheek augmentation on a patient who always had a thin face, because they will look weird. But if they had a thicker face and now they have a thinner face, um, that's a good person. There has been a randomized trial to compare the effect of lasers, radiofrequency, etc., on recent fillers. So the theory is, if you do fillers and then you zap them with laser, something bad can happen. And the answer, to be very simple, is with various different energy devices, the answer is no. You will not disrupt the filler. We did a similar study with radiofrequency. We did biopsies on it, and we couldn't find any disruption of the implant um, or any other problem in the surrounding skin. So you can safely do this. And I think, again, the reason is because even though they're called dermal fillers, they're not in the dermis. They're the subcutis, and none of these materials really get down to the, none of these energy devices really do much in the subcutis. So the filler is below the level of access. There has also been a report in 2007, um, an ArcDerm from the University of Michigan group, indicating that a small amount of temporary fillers will culminate in a permanent effect. And they did show this with Restylin, but what they found is probably applicable to any temporary filler. Um, there are a number of effects, most significantly mechanical stretch of the fibroblasts. So as you can imagine, pretty much any temporary filler would mechanically stretch the fibroblasts and create a little bit of a collagen effect that results in permanent improvement. And it doesn't mean that it will never need 
um, hyaluronic injections, again, it means a certain amount, 5-10% um, may last forever. And this is an example of neocollagenesis after calcium hydroxylapatide injections, not from that paper, but a subsequent paper that attempted to replicate the same findings in a different material. Hyaluronidase. Why are hyaluronic acids so popular? We're now going to talk a little bit about adverse events. They're very popular because they have a special chemical enzyme that can reverse them. So hyaluronidase will reverse hyaluronic acid injections. And these are available. You can buy them. They come in little vials. Um, I think we, can, we currently use something called Vitrace. It's uh, 200 units in 1.2 mLs. Um, and you just withdraw it. You can dilute it or you can inject it full strength. You do want to discuss the use of this with patients because very often after you inject someone for the first time, especially in an area under the eyes where they're not used to what they look like, they can get a little puffy. They will always get a little puffy under eye injections, and then they go down after a few days, or a lip injection. So people will come in and say, oh my God, I look terrible. It's more than I expected. Can you make it go away? You want to resist the temptation to do that because usually in a week or two, that swelling will go and they'll be very happy. So usually what I say is we're happy to do that, but why don't you come back in two weeks and if you still don't like it, we'll make it go away. Another thing to communicate to them is it's very difficult to take away just a little bit so if they like 90% of it, but they don't like this little thing right over here, that can be hard to fix. And if we inject that little thing right over here, everything might go away. So if they're pretty happy with it, maybe a little bit of massage, a little bit of waiting might be better than wasting all of their money. However, there is this nice report that shows that the amount that you need to inject is actually very, very small. So keep in mind, your little vial with 1.2 cc's has 200 units. You don't need 50 units or 100 units. You need a very small amount. In this case, they had a little bit of overcorrection, and they tried to use only three units, and then another one and a half units, and they got the desired effect. So if you really do need to try to chase your tail and make a little bit go away, you can be very, very sparing. And I've done this, and it's kind of annoying because the patient keeps coming back you know, every week, and you keep doing a little teeny bit more, a little teeny bit more, um, but some patients like this. You do need to know when to cut patients off. And this is the same sort of thing as when patients come back and they say, well, I think this side is a little more filled than this side. Can you fill this side a little bit more? You need to cut patients off. Sometimes patients are hypercritical and you don't want to just keep doing this over and over again until both sides look ridiculous. Um, so you need to know when objectively they're done. And then you reassure them and send them home. There are a whole bunch of papers about how to deal with filler complications. It's nice to have them nearby. We're going to talk about some of these specific filler complications that can happen. Um, one thing to have is nitroglycerin paste. If you inject intravascularly, so you don't want to inject in a vessel, but it's not always possible to avoid it. There are lots of vessels. They're very small sometimes, and sometimes you can get a little bit of an injection in a vessel. Um, what you can do is massage, try to get it back out of the vessel. You can flush the area with a lot of saline to try to dilute the effect. Um, and you can also use something like nitroglycerin ointment if you feel you're getting vasospasm that might then relax. Uh, with regard to color, collagen products, um, I'm sorry, I hate when these slides do this. Um, collagen products and radius are white, and so they can be injected close to the surface of the skin and there'll be no color abnormality. Hyaluronic acid products are clear, so if they're injected too superficially in the dermis, apart from giving you a bleb, it'll be a blue bleb because of the Tyndall effect. Okay? 
So this is a case of the Tyndall effect in a published paper from a superficial injection to the nasolabial fold. Now how can this be fixed? You can take an 11 blade or something similar, basically make a puncture and extrude the material. Um, you can also try to inject steroid, but I think extruding is better because if you inject steroid, you might then cause another problem. And of course you can always use hyaluronidase here as well. Bruising versus bleeding, we already spoke about this. Collagens bruise less. I'm not going to go back into that. Okay, complications. So here are some moderate problem complications. Persistent erythema and swelling can last, in some cases, just a day or two, usually, but in some cases, much longer. So if it lasts much longer, you might need to consider treatment with some other modalities, such as an antibiotic, if they have a little bit of granuloma or some low-grade persistent infection. Okay. Foreign body reactions. Um, what does that mean? That means that, is this a true granuloma or not? That's a big controversial area. But usually, we just think of these as a little bit of filler being injected superficially and causing some injury to the dermis that results in a foreign body reaction. Um, this is a case of maybe a truer granuloma or something similar where after injection you get a lump that's not going away and then you have to IND this little abscess and make this material come out. Is this a true in, in granulomatous response or is this just a foreign body reaction? Hard to tell sometimes, but in any event you do need to remove the material to the best of your ability, um, often use intralesional steroids, antibiotics, over time, these things tend to get better by themselves. And you can usually biopsy the material if you're not absolutely sure, or send a little bit of the material off to the lab, and they will get you some pathology on it. What about true granulomas? Let's say you have a true granuloma. What are you going to do with it? Well, usually we do the things that I've said. You puncture them, you extrude them, you um, express them, inject steroids, use oral antibiotics. In Europe, though, there's this one interesting report where they have more complications in Europe because they've been using permanent injection materials for longer. And at least one report of um, using lasers. So they've used naked laser fibers. It's very interesting. So you know, most lasers that we have are not naked fibers. They come in a handpiece. But you can use a naked laser fiber. And they've actually used them to make poke holes in the lip or other areas. Very, very, very tiny holes through which then the laser material, the... the, the, the filler material then comes out. So the mixture of the heat and the tiny puncture helps extrude this material. Just interest for interest only. No one's doing this in the U.S., but there is a technique. So if one of your patients really has this, you can send to Dan Casuto in Italy and he can do this for them. Um, periocular nodules after polyalactate. We mentioned this already. Please don't do this. These look like syringomas. They're really hard to fix. I know at least one dermatologist who has this from being injected by another expert injector. He did a fine job. It's just impossible to avoid. Serious complications with fillers. These are very rare, so you don't need to be anxious, but they can happen, and you should be prepared. And if you're doing a lot of them, they will happen at some point. I've seen a number of patients with this. Thank God I haven't done it to one of my own yet, but I've seen a number. And again, this is a paper of Dr. Cohen's, uh, where he goes over the anatomy, looking at a number of different areas that are high-risk areas. These include the periglobella area, which is 
here, of course, where the supratrochlear is, the angular artery in the medial cheek, the superior inferior labial, labial arteries in the angle of the mouth, and the parotid duct. That's obviously not an artery, but it is a duct that can be occluded, and you don't want to occlude that either. So those are the areas you want to be careful in. What can happen if this happens anyway? Well, often nothing bad happens. It looks terrible right after it happens, um, and you can see something didn't quite happen correctly, but the erosion, the redness, the swelling, even the sloughing often resolves permanently um, and completely as it did in this case. So that's very nice. That's actually not uncommon, so that's good. Now, in some cases, it doesn't completely go away. And this is a case of a young lady who had these bad bruises in her mouth right after injection. And, of course, you can bruise, but if you look at the um, lower photograph on the left side, that reticulated appearance you see on the lower lip is very indicative of what a vascular occlusion looks like. It's almost like you get into a vessel and it's almost like a Christmas tree and it all gets affected. So that reticulated appearance is concerning and that can cause a little bit of permanent depression and scarring afterwards. It's conservative management. There's not much you do. You give them some antibiotics, you give them topical steroids, you can even give them some systemic steroids if you want and then you just hope and do a lot of hand-holding. Um, this is, of course, a bad case of someone who had um, inflammation, abscess formation, and um, this healed with some scarring, fortunately not horrible scarring. You can get super infection of these as well once you get necrosis, so you do want to use antibiotics as well. The worst things happen on the nose. The nose is just like bad news when these things happen. And obviously, this is a catastrophic case of an arterial embolism, and you can see on the pathology slide there is material, the little star dots, um, the gelatinous sort of translucent material that's completely occluding the vessel. And that's what happened. It kind of just went straight in there. And um, there's not much you can do once you have arterial occlusion. You just kind of wait for it to heal. Um, but again, you do have other things at your disposal. If you think you've got a little one, this is very rare, a little one, you want to flush it with saline, you want to use some hyaluronidase, you want to kind of massage it out, do the best you can, and then see the patient back very often. A couple of more cases of affecting um, the nose. Um, and as you can see, this is not a great place because you can get bad scarring here. And why does this happen on the nose? Because there's a lot of vessels on the nose. And um, there's a lot of watershed areas on the nose, and it's really easy to inject them. So yet another reason not to inject people after nose jobs. So one way to avoid a lot of these adverse events is, as a take-home is slow injection. If you can inject at a rate of less than about 0.3 milliliters a minute, the risk of causing an injury is very, very low. Okay? So this is, of course, glacially slow. This means a one cc vial could take you three minutes to inject. But if you inject very slowly, you will not usually inject into a vessel. The other thing is inject relatively superficially, especially on the glabella. You don't want to push your needle all the way down and inject. You want to be relatively superficial. There are cases, one case, with collagen of glabella injections causing blindness by occlusion of the retinal artery. There are no cases with hyaluronic acids, but if it can happen with collagen, it can happen with this too. So superficial and slow. There are some recent papers indicating that the future of augmentation might not be what we are looking at, but might really be stem cells. And now, how do stem cells work? Well, one of the biggest reservoirs of stem cells are the so-called 
adult adipose-derived stem cells. So from lipoaspirate in your belly, with, with your fat, there are a number of stem cells floating around with those fat cells. And when you do liposuction, or if you deliberately harvest these, you can separate those stem cells. And you can show their stem cells because you can get them to differentiate into cartilage or muscle or bone or whatever, unlike normal cells that are already differentiated. And then the thought is, well, can't you take those cells and stick them over here? And won't they become even more effective than just the garden variety fat cells? And the answer is yes, but. And the yes, but is that they've done animal studies. We've done some animal studies at the University of Illinois in Champaign uh, with this as well. The problem is a scalability problem. You can put a few stem cells over here, but if you put a lot of stem cells over there, their requirements for nourishment overwhelm the local blood supply, and they crush each other, and they die. So the, the biomedical engineers are working on these so-called chemical scaffolds, which keep the stem cells far enough apart and protect them so you can inject the scaffold with the stem cells so that they survive for longer and you can put more in at one time. Because putting 10 cells in at a time is obviously not therapeutically useful. So that's kind of the challenge right now, how to, how to scale up this process so that you can make it clinically significant. And there are a number of papers showing they're having some success in doing this um, now with um, mice and um, with different kinds of chemical scaffolds. There are also some research recently on developing better scales to validate and compare different kinds of injections. Because obviously, as we are trying to improve our injection um, technique and finding better materials, it's very important to be able to tell what's better. And what's better is often a subjective assessment. So we're trying to develop some scales that can help to make this more objective. Okay, That's, can someone tell me how I'm doing on time? Okay, what time is it? 8.30. So I'm going to go through botulinum toxins very, very quickly. The other talk will be a little shorter, so we'll catch up. We're not going to probably do fractional resurfacing because I just don't think we can get to it. This is very short. So you already know a lot about botulinum toxins, so um, I don't think I need to belabor the point, but I'd like to just touch on some things that are new. So Dysport is relatively new. It was supposed to be called Reloxin, but the FDA didn't like the name, so they called it Dysport, which of course disappointed the company because Dysport sounds terrible, but Reloxin sounds kind of nice, but whatever. So it's called um, Dysport. And the vials are 300 units rather than the 500 units we expected, which is not so great either. But nonetheless, it's a very good alternative to um, Botox. Because Botox is well-established, the market penetration has been slower than expected, in part because a lot of people don't really want to switch they already have a good product they like, and because some people are also waiting for treatment protocols to be clearly defined. So it's not a one-to-one -one equivalence or even a two-and-a-half-to-one equivalence. No one really knows exactly what the equivalence is, and a lot of people would like to keep on using their Botox until this is well-defined. So that's probably why slower acceptance than desired by the company. Is it as safe as Botox? Definitely, as far as we know, there's no reason to believe it's not. There's a lot of experience from abroad, there's also been a U.S. trial in which patients received six administrations, repeated administrations from the same patients over time, and nothing bad happened. They had no increase in adverse events, no increase in hypersensitivity over time, which is, of course, one of the major concerns. So there doesn't appear to be any difference in safety between this and Botox. The glabella studies that are the ones that were 
used for approval in the U.S. basically entailed a series of five injections of 10 units each of Dysport in a V around the glabella area. And so that's, that's what all of these studies are founded on, just so you know. And that's why we have this feeling it's about two and a half units of Dysport to one unit of Botox, because normally we use about four units maybe to each of these sites, and here we use 10 units of Dysport to each of these sites. There are a number of treatment emergent adverse events, but basically they are the same as they are. This is impossible to read, obviously, as they are for Botox. Hardly anything. Occasionally you can get a little bit of brow ptosis. Rarely you can get a little bit of lid ptosis. Occasional headaches. Exactly the same. No difference in side effect profile. Is it longer lasting? Now you might have heard some stories that some people think maybe Dysport lasts a little bit longer than Botox. I don't think you can give a lot of credence to that data because that data is based on Dysport-only studies that showed maybe 105 to 110 days of effect. But that's so close to what the Botox data is that unless you have a side-by-side trial, there's really no way of telling if there's a difference. Maybe there's a two-day difference or three-day difference, but that, that usually goes away in side-by-side trials. That can just be artifactual. So my opinion would be it's exactly the same in terms of persistence. Um, similar caveats about the rate of onset. Some people feel like it might take effect a little bit longer. I think there's a little bit more validity to that. It might take effect a little bit faster. But again, patients don't value that very much because we had myoblock or botulinum toxin B a few years ago, which took effect definitely faster, like in a day, and it went out of business because no one really cared if it took effect a day faster because it lasted less long. So it wasn't really a selling point. The duration of response is very, very um, linear, just as it is with Botox. It gradually tails off, so that's very good. So basically, it's like Botox. So how does it differ? I think one way it differs is in the so-called diffusion. And here we're going to get into some semantics. You might have heard about how it diffuses differently. Well, I think the better term is action halo. And what does action halo mean? Action halo means if you inject in a point, what is the diameter around that point where this has an effect? Okay, And that action halo is approximated by doing these studies where they use hyperhydrotic halo. So they inject your forehead and they use um, the sweat pattern to see how far away it's acting. Okay, Because obviously Botox also stops sweating. So now we know that for equivalent reconstitution volumes, Dysport's halo is broader than Botox's halo. And what does that mean? That means fewer injections can cover a wider area, which can be very helpful on the forehead. So you don't have to do a lot of forehead injections. Just a few can cover a wider area. It can also be, of course, a limiting factor on the lower face where you want to be very precise. And you don't want your toxin to be acting very far away from where you inject it because you're worried about unilateral mouth droop or something. So I'd say on the lower face, Dysport is slightly more technically difficult to use, at least for beginners, because you don't want stuff to go really far away from where you're injecting it. The caveat is equivalent reconstitution volume because the intrinsic effects of Botox or Dysport can be mitigated by how much water or saline you dilute it in. So for instance, if you take Dysport, which has a broader action halo, and dilute it in one cc of water, and you take Botox or saline, and you reconstituted in 10 cc's of fluid, that Botox will be sloshing about in a whole bunch of water and an equivalent number of units will actually diffuse much further because there's so much more fluid in it. So usually this difference in action halo 
is not relevant because people's differences in how much fluid they use probably have much more of an effect on how widely it's dispersed than the intrinsic difference between dysport and Botox. So I hope that's not horribly convoluted, but I think it's important because it's a very confusing issue. So for an equivalent reconstitution volume, dysport will have a more distant effect. So it's a possible plus on the forehead. Might be a minus right over the mid um, forehead, right above the brow, where you don't want to cause brow ptosis. And overall, this sport might be better for the upper face, but less helpful for the lower face, where precision is more important. These are the experiments with the action halos. And you can see, not a very good picture. It's reproduced from a paper of two units of Botox and five units of dysport. And you can see the wider action halo with the, with the dysport. We've already discussed this. I won't get into it. The conversion. There's no official conversion because officially they're different drugs. One is onabotulinum toxin A and one's abobotulinum toxin A. And they have different helper molecules or proteins that come with them, even though the actual botulinum toxin A is the same. And so there's not really a generic for it, and they're actually different products because of the different helper molecules. But obviously, you have to have some rule of thumb to know which is which. And um, Karzai and Rollin had done a study in 2008 where they thought that the best ratio using a systematic review of the literature was about 2.5 to 1. So that might be a starting point, and then you can go from there. Who knows how many more of these are coming in the future? Um, there are ones coming from China, more from Germany. Um, who knows about efficacy and cost and reliability and purity? I think safety is very important in the U.S., so we probably will be less likely to use ones where we are suspect uh, or that are suspect with regard to purity. And cost is a major factor. At present, there's not much of a difference. I think Dysport's a little cheaper, but not that much cheaper. So, and these are some of the ones that are on the way, as you can see from Germany and China and other places, not yet approved in the U.S. Some other techniques that you can use for um, Botox that weren't traditionally used. Some of these, this last few that I'd like to discuss, are correction of the gummy smile, unsquaring of the Asian face, um, treatment of temporary mandibular jaw dysfunction, um, and symmetry after excisional surgery. So for the gummy smile, for people who are showing a lot of gum, what you can do is you can inject um, the, the triangle right lateral to the nasal ala, so that, that, that corner of the nose, that little place right over there. And if you inject that, that causes the lip to descend and cover up the gummy area a little bit. Small amounts are needed. You're getting the levator labii superioris and the levator labii superioris alechnasii, and maybe the little zygomaticus minor. Five units at a time, wait a while. A couple of weeks later, do another five units if necessary. What about the square Asian face? Um, Korean people in particular tend to like, women like to have a more oval or triangular face rather than kind of a squarish, jowly face. And for this, there are a couple of different ways of doing this. And the, uh, but one way of doing this is to use a total of maybe 30 to 50 units of Botox or 100 to 140 units of Dysport per side. And in this case, you, can, you have a couple of injection points here, here, and here, or you can kind of spread them out into like six injection points all over the place. Or if you don't like either of these, you can just grab a hold of the masseter and just kind of inject three or four places in the masseter and then do the same on the other side. This does work. My previous research assistant was Korean and she had a square face. We did this several times and her face changed. So it definitely works. Um, TMJ dysfunction. What is this? This is the people who grind their teeth at night and shatter their teeth and do all kinds of odd things like that. And they have 
mouth guards that don't work and they're at their wits end. So for them, um, this is not done so much in dermatology, but as in the ENT literature, there are a number of cases of doing this under EMG guidance. Now, of course, ENT people like doing everything under EMG guidance. I'm not sure it's absolutely necessary. Some of them even inject Botox normally under EMG guidance. Um, they're pretty standard areas where you would inject. So you're looking at um, both um, the, the um, um, muscle of the masseter right in, in the, in the mid-lateral face. You're also looking at the temporalis um, higher up. And so those are the two areas you would inject. And then you would wait and see what happens. So I think this is a pretty good idea, um, something to consider trying in some cases. Unilateral forehead excision, we do this routinely. If you have someone with a Mohs defect or skin cancer defect or something over one brow and you want to sew this up, you can do various different things, but the easiest thing is just to sew this up this way. Because anything else gives, leaves funny lines. If you sew it up horizontally, you get a perfectly nice hidden line, but temporarily, for three months or so, one brow is going to go up, and that's kind of a pain. So what you can do is you can inject um, underneath the other brow for brow lift, lateral one-third of it right underneath the brow, and that will cause the other brow to go up too for about three months, which is about how long this one will stay up. So they'll be relatively symmetric, and people do like that. It makes them look not funny for the first three months. So that's it for that, and now we're going to switch to the other talk, please. If there are any questions, please feel free.